Hello, I'm Lyle Troxell. I'm a software engineer at Netflix, and on the side, I dabble in electronics, blacksmithing, woodworking, art, theater, photography, parenting, landscaping, and building community. For almost two decades, I have done weekly interviews. I have interviewed CEOs, authors, scientists, engineers, journalists, artists, academics, you know, basically amazing people. A geek wholeheartedly engages in their passions, and I have found my passion helping them talk about theirs. Welcome to GeekSpeak. What do you think? Nice. All right. Yeah, I'm all into that. I was told recently I had to have an intro thing, so there it is. I'm Lyle Troxel. In the air with me is Miles Elam. He's a software engineer in beautiful Santa Cruz, California. Hi, Miles. How's it going? Good. It's been a while. It's good to see you. We also have Brian Young. He's also a software engineer in the medical field in Palo Alto, California. Yes, and speaking of beautiful, I see your pool behind you, the lovely window. It's finally crystal clear. I have to say that when we got rid of the all the algae the other day when we swept it and I turned the motor off, this morning it was all just collected on the bottom of the pool. Oh, lovely. Miles, we're going to start with you, sir. Um, micro LEDs, displays, please do tell. Micro LED is a technology that is... Uh, hoping to supersede the existing LED displays that you find on many TVs and the OLED displays that you see on newer TVs. I thought OLED wasn't the new hotness. It was. Micro LED is still in the design process, so we're looking at seeing products as soon as 2020, according to this article. So, you know, 2022 before they become affordable for... Unless it's batteries in case 2030. (laughs) But uh, when we're talking about a... uh, how small we're talking about in terms of mini. Micro. Micro. Um, When you think of a, uh, in this article, it talks about a ladybug, and a ladybug being about uh, a centimeter, about 10 millimeters. And the display that they have demoed is half a millimeter. Okay. Now, you would think, wow, that seems really small and in this half a millimeter they have a, you know showing an image for example of albert einstein sticking wait, his tongue wait, wait. out the display is half yes. a millimeter yes the entire display yes how many pixels is this uh enough to make albert einstein <laughs> so like 10 by 10 i or? don't know how exactly how many it is uh-huh. but it's a fourteen thousand pixel per inch display so take fourteen thousand per pixel as as that point, and then reduce that number. 14,000 pixels per inch? Yes. Those are micro. That's really <laughs> of course, small. Now, now, now I'm imagining turning in my 4K monitor that's, uh, what, 27 inches across for uh, something I can barely see on the end of my thumb. Now, no, you no, might- you're going to still get it 24. <laughs> it's just going to be billions and billions of pixels. <laughs> right. Now, you might wonder, like, what's the point of having displays that are really that small? But- you know, Miles, what I'm wondering is, why have displays that are that small? <laughs> One of the side effects for these micro LED displays is that they can output a huge amount of brightness relative to their LED and OLED cousins. Okay. To the point that they had a wristwatch that they were using to demo. And that array for that wristwatch was giving off about 4,000 nits. That's not a display. That's a weapon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, four thousand. Obviously, by your response, you realize like four thousand is a huge amount because many typical LED TVs are around the range of fifty nits. Yeah, seventy. It's already a lot brighter. And if you ever try to drive a standard LED or OLED uh, element at that 
level to get to that brightness, they would burn out. That means that you can have these items, and especially if you put in some type of lensing or whatever over the area so that they spread out Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully get rid of that really annoying checkerbox pattern that's on every LED display out there, then you're looking at the ability to have really bright screens at really low power. That 4,000 nits on that wristwatch came in at one watt. Oh, okay. So we're talking about high efficiency output. And is the size... Oh, and I see. So it's high efficiency, but they're very, very small. So Mm -hmm. you need to pack them really tightly together, therefore a smaller screen. It's so funny because normally you think about high um, output, light output, Mm -hmm. you think about a lot of wasted heat and therefore giant heat sinks and stuff. So making it smaller actually makes the problem worse. So this is a fundamentally new way of doing LED more efficiently. Yes. And you could conceivably, at least in my mind, spread them out further and have the display be able to mesh the the different pixels uh, together. So Mm -hmm. even if you had the red, green, blue, or red, green, green, blue LEDs right next to one another um, to get color accuracy the best because they were so close to each other, you don't have to have that Mm -hmm. that positional uh, offset for them. And you had the next layer above it act as a Fresnel lens, for example, Mm -hmm. to spread them out, spread that uh, color out. Then you end up with something that also dissipates heat much more efficiently. Sure. Wow, really cool. So new technology on LEDs and coming in 2020, maybe, if we're lucky. That's awesome. (laughs) So it sounds like uh, they'd be targeting phones before they'd be targeting uh, desktop devices. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. I could also imagine heads-up displays of some sort, you know, uh, lenses, things of that nature. Cool. I want to do a quick update on my surgery because a couple episodes ago I mentioned that I am having back surgery. I had back surgery July 1. Um, it is now, as we record, the end of July. I was walking the first day. After 10 days, I was not doing drugs anymore. I'm still having trouble sleeping. I'm just not comfortable laying down very much. But in general, things are going really well. Stood up in the hospital, walked around, no numbness in my legs. So high success. Yay, yay, yay. I'm not going back to work until six weeks out um, because I'm spending time healing and being patient and I haven't started physical therapy yet. Uh, Swam for the first time yesterday. Thanks, Brian, for helping me out with that. And things are going really well. So there's that quick update. Let's do one more story by you, Miles. You got some updates on your former employer, Google. Google's looking to ratchet back the free-for-all that was Google Chrome extensions. And they actually have been ratcheting back over time, but this one is going to be a major shift uh, relative to how things were used. Before, when you made a Google Chrome extension, in general, those authors would say, oh, I'm just going to take all these permissions, I'm going to do all these things, and I'm going to send you know whatever activity the user sends to our analytics. And it was a privacy, questionable from a privacy standpoint. I'll just leave it at that. Google is now looking to minimize that data collection and going back to the extensions and going, you must collect the absolute minimum necessary in order for your product to work. Does Google or review, sorry, the ma- yeah? Does Google review the code that's being put in extensions? They have started to in the okay. uh, recent past, yes. And so this is now an extension of that. Um, they started doing it to crack down on the malware. Yeah. So they were doing some examination of it to keep uh, legitimately bad actors from. We doing were seeing it. things in Chrome extensions that did a simple thing. 
And then what was actually doing in the background was mining, using your computer's processor power to mine for cryptocurrency. Right. right. We saw that kind of stuff. So they were cracking down for that for a while. You're right that the what the Chrome extension can do by logging and setting off the back end is quite a bit, right? Um, right. All the activity that you're doing with the Chrome extension, but also potentially every page that gets loaded because Chrome extensions can do a little bit of simple, like where you are kind of uh, queries. Um, okay, good. I'm glad they're cracking down on that. So now let's say this product does, if you set up a Chrome extension, say I want to add this to the Chrome extension store you have to not only say this is what it does but then justify and we we're collecting this information in order to and if you are collecting information that has nothing to do with the core focus of that app they're going to start uh denying it mm-hmm. makes sense so like analytics and uh, obviously ad tracking and all that kind of stuff can't be slipped into something that's for the purpose of a user tool or something i don't know that it'll be a blanket ban on analytics because that's a pretty big hammer but at the same time collecting personal info that you don't need access to if you're prompting users for some of that information or sending information non-anonymized information from well, I would assume that the analytics extension, the Chrome extension analytics, like whatever it's doing, let's say it's getting weather and displaying weather Mm -hmm. or something, it's going to, like, as it gets, it can log all that stuff. But the question of how much sniffing it's doing about the user activity in general would be the kind of analytics that we'd want, that Google would want to restrict. Right. I will see how, I mean, let's see how beneficial they are. I mean, to really do this, you both have to make the rule set, then you have to create the APIs, potentially block stuff. And then you also have to then police at some level. You have to some, you know, do some review process. And then there's going to be some level of criticism as well, saying, "Wait, Google is saying they're not. You're collecting too much information." So there is some pushback with regard to that about uh, regarding perceived hypocrisy. Are you infer- Are you inferring that Google collects data? I know they collect data. I also i th- I personally believe from the people that I knew that I was there that were trying to do good with the information. But I also think that. Google, the data vacuum cleaner sometimes had a little, t- a few too many amps on it, yeah, um, and still does. So, well, it, it, isn't that one of the big lessons from the last decade that uh, data collected with good intentions still can go very, very wrong? Absolutely. Brian, speaking of lockdown, well, thank you, Miles, for that story about Google and, and locking down Chrome extensions, making it a little better potentially. Um, let's talk a bit about Mac OS, the new. <laughs> The new OS ten, if you will, Mac OS, and kind of some changes Apple's been doing in that ecosystem. Yeah, so th- this story has been developing for for years now, as Apple has been uh, locking down its Mac operating system more and more. Um, to compare it to iOS, uh, iOS has been locked down in, in major ways since it first came out, and it made a lot of sense because here we are, we're, we're having these phone devices that are going to start taking lots and lots of personal information, and they have, and um, there's been tightening of iOS and Android over the years. But um, at the same time, Apple's been looking to take what was a completely open operating system, um, just with uh, Unix, Unix permission level um, sort of security, and locking it down more and more. And what um, do we mean by locking down? It's not like enhancing security for the user. You mean like as an app developer, what an app developer can do with their apps and how it runs, kind of like these Chrome extension stories from Google. Apple's been changing that over time. Well, well, no, actually, I mean both, because um, you've got things like the hardened security, um, the hardened runtime, which uh, it was introduced uh, two or three versions ago. Um, and that no longer made the, the operating 
system, the the installed software accessible by uh, even an admin user. Mm -hmm. They were able to run it. They weren't able to modify it. And they've been expanding what that includes and um, and locking the everybody on the machine out unless you were to do something that uh, required a, a, a reboot of the machine to uh, turn that off. You're talking about like protecting the BIOS and protecting the startup part of the OS from uh, any kind of modifications. The, the, the core operating system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the next release, which is in beta right now, and uh, anything could change, but um, this is certain to, uh, to continue, uh, they are actually going to the extent that they are installing the operating system on a different partition transparently to the user. It still looks like you have a single hard drive and a single partition, but transparently the operating system is installed on one partition. The, um, the data part of uh, the operating system where the user files are is a completely different partition and there is no right access to the operating system partition right so it's being mounted in a read-only matter from a user's perspective exactly and what this means is a lot of existing tools a lot of existing unix tools or other tools written for older versions of uh, the mac operating system are possibly going to be broken and have to be rewritten for this but these are complex tools, right? These are like analysis of the operating system type tools or... Well, the, these are Unix tools that mm-hmm. Mac users pull, uh, pull over and use. It's not the kind of tool that your grandma's going to be okay. uh, running at home. Isn't that weird that the... I mean, at one level, the trade-off we have on, on iOS, where we have Apple control the operating system and make sure it's really tight and secure, means that as long as we trust Apple, we know that we're going to be in a safe situation. Moving that into the laptop to me kind of seems to be stepping farther and farther into my own ability to make choices. Absolutely. Uh, Us who have used (laughs) um, operating systems going back uh, decades where you could literally do anything and totally destroy the install in one keystroke. Um, We're used to having the power to do whatever we want on the computer, but except update our RAM and (laughs) update our hard drives. And Oh, you're still used to that, Mr. What is what generation laptop is that? I can't update my RAM, but I did update my storage. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, I mean, th- this story's been going on a long time as we see it tightened. And and honestly, I want the security that comes with that. I, I want um, my data to be uh, have the protections on it. And uh, in parallel to the story of our computers, our Macs being locked down, is the story of trying to be able to run more apps from iOS on the Mac. Right. So uh, something that was announced a year ago, uh, which was the ability to, in a a year from last year, they announced that they were going to allow developers to run iOS apps, or actually specifically uh, iPad apps on a Mac. Right. And And, and Apple's done this on the operating system we're currently about to be released. The the beta. A whole bunch of the apps that are like uh, available that were iPad apps are actually running on the Mac Mac, and it's the same source code. Right. Theoretically. So this year they they gave it a name. They called it um, Catalyst. It's an ability to run these iPad apps on the Mac. It's great. It opens up the market for iPad apps. As an iOS developer, you're excited. Yes. It's great for Mac users because it gives a lot of apps that are available an easy way to get onto them. But what it also does is you continue to get this all these apps that are used to very private information on a phone onto a desktop operating system. And all of a sudden, all those securities, the hardened um, runtime, uh, limiting all of what each app can do through entitlements and sandboxing, uh, and all these things make a lot of sense. 
because you don't want to mix that private information in a way that it will be will be hacked. Yeah. It's funny, it just seems like a very long it's a, it's a very long story we've been talking about for years, you know, at one point Telnet was open on routers, right? Cuz why not? You might want to get in there and fix it. And over time people realized that oh, bad actors could get into your router and do stuff. And so we've slowly made things more and more restrictive with security all the way down to the machine itself for years. We've been doing that for years. So it doesn't and it's so funny that you mentioned the Google story with Chrome extensions to, the same it's the same story but here's the thing you know i i i'm new to being a developer this is something that's only happened in the last five or so years that i built my development career i've only been working professionally for a year as a the previous as a developer uh previously my old career was as a pro what do you call it um graphics professional i used computers as a as my professional tool and i was used to all the power in the world that that I wanted to have. I I could have three or four apps that I needed to use, but I needed to interchange information. I needed to make uh, scripts that would pass uh, from one app to another. I needed to tie them all together. There's no way a single um, app maker or developer or developing house would develop exactly the tool I needed. You're you're talking about when you were doing lighting? Uh, This is is when I did computer graphics, um, lighting for Pixar uh, and, and other tools. Of course, they had in-house software, um, but I was there when they started buying Shake and other uh, properties that they would bring in-house, uh, and we had to make all these things work together. So I come from a mindset where I had power over my computer, and when there wasn't something that was made as an app, I could tie multiple apps together. And this whole story of security, this whole story of uh, the iOSification of the Mac, um, it it's getting in the way of that at the while we've had this going on nobody has been standing up for the users to say hey how are people that don't have apps made for them going to be able to do what they want to do we have there's a tron reference in there somewhere <laughs> <laughs> we, we we have since the internet we've had this um uh, consumerification of computers yeah. as well. And all these companies, which we now talk about, about privacy and security and data collection, they also have made interfaces that are very specific to what is good for their business case. Mm-hmm. But they're not good for users in the sense that they give users power over their computer. Well, I mean, if you think of it as one of the side effects of this kind of lockdown is less less malware on your machine, that's power. that's empowering a user. I mean, they didn't no, want that to that, run anyway. That's that's protecting the user, but it's not empowering the user. Yeah, there, hmm. that's that whole. There's a sliding scale of security and convenience, or power. <clears throat> and if you are locking things down more, you are almost by definition not always, but you're reducing the freedom to to experiment. You're reducing the ability to have a, a convenience. Yeah, you're you're reducing your ability to do what you want with your computer, with your data, with uh, what you have in front of you. You are siloed not only by you know the Apple App Store. You're siloed by each company's use case that they want to give you. But I I would love to be able to take my financial software and tie it more closely to various things that I do on my computer, my scanning of my receipts and stuff. I, I would love to be able to automate things that I, I can't automate because the operating system is being more and more uh, tied down. Hmm. But, I mean, let's be clear also. We're talking about the APIs um, for items, and I don't know that 
the operating system for the laptop is ever really going to become like the phone or the tablet. They're, they're well, I think Brian's point is it's getting closer to that direction. Whether it's going to always be that way or not, well, well, totally l- true. L- let me give you a reason to think otherwise. Okay. So not only this year did Apple release uh, Catalyst for iPad developers to get the apps on the Mac, they released Swift UI. What it is is it's throwing out the UI layer of iOS and mm-hmm. the Mac and bringing in something new that... The the whole idea is that you can learn how to use Swift UI and you can write for any of their platforms. They're trying very strongly to make it so that a developer is not developing for one one platform. They're developing for the Apple platforms and they just have to tweak a few things here or there so that it's appropriate for each one. All, so, when you do so that, side you, effects of this, yeah, yeah, I mean, would be the the media player that exists in the iOS ecosystem that has very specific ways of playing media um, is very different than the media implementation layer that's in macOS. And so the question is, this new API, as they surface this new API, how will they do media? Will it be more like iOS or more like the Mac? And if it's more like iOS and it's more like a black box and there's, you know, the DRM system's completely controlled by the operating system, you can't implement your own, those kind of, which is similar to the iOS side, that kind of decision could modify the Mac's ability to be a general purpose media encoding tool outside of Apple's implementation, potentially. The other side of that is they might go, here's the one we're using, but here you can always still step in to see if you want. But here's the part where I'm a little bit, uh, where I disagree, I diverge Mm. somewhat, is that a phone has some input ability, but is largely a viewer. viewer. And And a camera. Yeah, the the tablet has actually been felt like more of a viewer in the past, and a lot of the tools have gotten better very recently to make it more of a content producer rather than just a content consumer. But no matter what happens, the rubber is going to need to hit the road, and someone needs to be able to make the apps. And right now, that is the laptop, that is the the desktop, that is the you know the server. Yeah, but when I'm and, making an app for iOS on a Mac, I am completely using the tools that Apple created. I'm not making many modifications to my operating system. I'm not doing anything special. I'm following their process, and I'm, in, I'm, I'm using Xcode, and I'm developing and compiling for, a desktop, for an operating system. For a system. GUI app, yes. Yeah, I'm talking about for an iOS GUI app, yeah. yeah. But in general, that's that, that sandbox, if you will, not really a sandbox, but development environment, tells me what I can do. It can, it controls what I can and cannot do. Now, there are ways of extending that, of course. You can do you know, C, uh, C++, for example, and totally build something else and compile it to the right target and have it still work. But, but what, what, what I'm trying to block from you is that just because, like right now, you could turn off everything else on the Mac, every other function on the Mac, and I could still write iOS apps on the Mac, right? You could make it so I couldn't have a microphone on this computer. So what, Apple could start doing that and still make product, still make app development possible. There's always going to be a market for that, and much the same way that there's a market for Chromebooks. There are folks that really aren't. I mean, that is literally all they need is that walled garden. That most very, people. That very specific. I'm going to make an email. I'm going to do some web browsing. I'm going to listen to music, and I'm going to check my finances. Maybe you know, balance my checkbook. But I mean, very—it's a very limited subset, you know, word processing, sure. spreadsheet, and for a laptop, yes. So if you're talking about a GUI app and you're talking about Swift UI, then 
yes, in that one particular area, it could get locked down. But for example, for myself, I was working with Docker and working with databases and you know, PostgreSQL on my local system and working with uh, Node.js and um, you know, having a web browser and working with uh, you know, Vue.js for the UI layer and a whole lot of other tools, like for example, the last year putting in Wireshark and doing network analysis and uh, Nmap. Well, so so network analysis and Wireshark and that kind of thing, that's the kind of stuff we'd start seeing disappear. I don't see that happening on an, on a laptop. I really don't. On the main operating system, I don't because that would be completely seeding the ground to everyone else. It would cease being a useful tool for developers and developers would jump ship. So I take your point. I give it to you there. That's equivalent to the analogy that of um, the Mac being the truck, the iOS being uh, the car, everybody else drives. Um, what I, what I want to make the argument for is that we've already gone too far. We've already gone way too far where it is. Now I don't want to give up the security. I don't want to give up the privacy. I want that to keep increasing. But what I feel like is that users and a very particular set of users is not making a loud enough noise to say, I want more power over what I can do. I want more companies to feel pushback that they need to allow the, their apps to be automated. They need to allow whatever they've created to be used the way the user wants, not the way that the business wanted. Mm. Well, let's talk about how far they're going. Now, we're right now talking uh, so about macOS just, versus Windows. Let me just tag one thing that you're mentioning there. You you're talking about the applica- you're talking about application developers or are you talking about the co- when you say the companies you're talking about Apple and Google and, and the No, I'm talking about application developers. Okay. I think, so like I think Adobe Apple has Photoshop a lot of power or, over them. Okay. All right. So you influence that. Go ahead, Miles. I just want to clarify. Right. I don't see I mean, yes to some extent Adobe has been trying to move their creative suite online. But there's also a lot of stuff I don't see as, I mean, <clears throat> and there it's, I can see a whole lot of work being done on a web page where you're doing stuff with Asm, uh, Asm.js and, we, uh, sorry, um, uh, what's it called again? Uh, the web assembly language. Web uh, assembly. Web, yeah. Oh yeah, web assembly. That's fine. And you're able to tie that in with uh, WebGL, which is the web version of OpenGL. And you're able to do these amazing things for the apps to do. And what you don't have access to is a raw memory pointer. Mm-hmm. You can have access to a raw memory pointer if you're an application developer on your own local box and doing development. But I'm not quite convinced that it is a overall loss to not exposing that to user space and to general application development. I actually consider that very much a security win. Mm-hmm. Well, and when, of course, the processor also is hiding that. That's not really a real raw memory pointer, right? There's still a layer of virtualization in there. For but you're not talking about that. You're but, talking about, I mean, when you're doing stack smashing attacks and, yeah. and buffer overflows and the like, it, it is a raw pointer for all yeah. So, Brian, what has gone too far? What are you talking about when you're saying, I want more power as a user? So, um, <laughs> really simple example. Uh there's a lot of applications that have an inbox 
that have a way to send a message, whether it's an instant messaging app, a text messaging app, a social media app, or like email Slack, app. Facebook, email all clients. All it's of them the have same, like it's the same pattern with a different set of features built on a different um, uh, network, mm-hmm. right? I would like to have the UI of my computer, of my operating system, let me say, I just want this button here. When I press that, I want that action to happen 12 hours from now. So I can send that social media post 12 hours from now, or I can send that message 12 hours from now. So, the application mm-hmm. developer didn't build that in. The, um, the, the people who have a business case for it didn't have a reason to think of that. But I, as a user, have an interface here. Why do I not have control over it to add features and add functionality that I would want to use? Mm-hmm. Interesting. So the reason why this comes up to me now is I'm here at my one-year anniversary of uh, being a professional iOS developer full-time in a development group. I feel like now that I understand all these systems all the way through, I've been lied to all these years that this can't be done. Of course it can be done. We just have to have that idea of you know interchangeable software parts, units of, of software that can be easily plugged together. Somebody has to stand up for that from a user's point of view and say, I want this. Now, your Joe Schmo user out there, your your um, 13-year-old on Instagram, your grandmother doing their checkbook, they're not going to call for that. It's a very small subset of users that are going to call for it. It's not even the people like us who can develop an, any application we want to if we set our mind to it. But if you take a look at what Apple has done just recently, where they have released a pro computer, an unarguably pro computer in the, <clears throat> in the uh, Mac Pro, super expensive high-end machine, that thing is designed for a very specific small subset of users. But the technology from it and the lessons from it will trickle down throughout the entire product line. I would like to see users to stand up to the companies and say, we really need this. And that small subset of users would influence all the software. Hmm. I Honestly, though, I do believe that there is, an, there is a middle ground here that is already being provided, which is... Uh, on Mac OS, tools like Automator, which... And Siri integration as yeah, well. isn't going away. No, it's not um, going away. Uh, and those those are a lot of where people cut their teeth on um, basic automation and basic programming to be able to say, here's the output from this one thing connected to the input of this other thing, which you know has been the, the hallmark of what a lot of people start off with with programming, even if it's just a... Uh, Unix pipe to say the output of this program goes to the input of this one. Okay, Brian addressed that. Automator, Siri shortcuts, shortcuts in general. So uh, I was really excited about Siri shortcuts. We we talked about it on an episode. I can see a lot of promise to that. It it is building units of functionality available to at first a Siri command, but there's no reason it couldn't be tied together through um, an automation system. They're starting to do that with with Siri. I want to call it workflow. I think it's called Siri shortcuts, which is the which is the actual app to mm-hmm. to to work with us. Um, maybe in ten years, I'll sit back and say, okay, that was the thing. Uh, but at the same time, Automator, which you mentioned, I was just doing a project two nights ago. I was just trying to output uh, individual PDF pages from a large PDF, turn them into images, and crop them. Pretty straightforward task. And Automator has all the the pieces, the pieces for that, and it was failing. I, I assume because it's just not maintained well right now. 
Hmm. It's also possible that the PDF was a little wonky to try multiple PDFs. No, no. Uh, I did not try multiple PDFs. However, I made the PDF, and I made it in InDesign. <laughs> okay. That's yeah, but did you load the PDF from InDesign in Apple Preview and then re-export from Apple Preview to get the and Apple, then try it? Apple Sugar? <laughs> and then have all my images uh, down-resed? <laughs> man, I'll, he knows his PDF. No, if, <laughs> yes, Smackdown. <laughs> all right, man. If you're going to become a technical developer, you're going to have to learn that notion of stuff won't work and so how do you troubleshoot it and take stuff to its what happens if i change this what happens what if i change this what what happens and then once you figure out what is actually wrong then you work back and go okay now how can i mitigate that how can i mitigate that brian indesign has a scripting language built in you could have put images from this so so here's the other thing here i am i have all this developer knowledge i didn't want to sit down and learn all of that yeah I didn't want to sit down and write my own app that could have done this. And I've that's got all the, whole the tools. Point of automator, right? That's right. What it's for. Right. There, there are tasks which you know are are uh, possible, easy to do, and you just need that the tools to make that happen. Well, I guess what I'm the one thing I'm gonna talk about is just PDFs in general. They're a friggin' mess. Like the spec is so bloated and huge. You know that full 3D rendering capabilities exist inside a PDF spec. It's insane. So. I, you lost me at PDF. Like, I am not a PDF proponent. Um, I totally get it from a, if you want to emulate print, but why are we emulating print? Who cares? Like, almost everything we do, print is like, oh, God, I got paper. Like, you really don't want it, actually. But it's this whole hold off. So you kind of lost me at PDF. I was just doing Automator today, and when I was doing this Automator thing, the, the tools that were built in were just a little bit less than what I wanted. It seemed a little more complex. So I was like, I'll just go to AppleScript real quick, and I found out, re-remembered, I should say, that there's full JavaScript implementation of, of AppleScript. So you can actually code in a language I actually know, because if you've ever tried to write an AppleScript, it's it's like you're having ch- you're, you're programming with a child. It's just really a bad experience with, with a toddler. Because <laughs> um, you have to say it all the right ways and repeat yourself and then try it again. Anyway... Um, but in JavaScript, all the, all that seemed to be there, it was pretty amazing. Um, so they have done some improvements to the scripting environment. Yeah, I've even done that from an Electron app called what would normally be from AppleScript to get some information about the network, for example. And it was just uh, Electron has its issues. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Electron is a web browser, and already the web browser is you know the web environment is not what anyone would describe as the perfect API from the ground up. It, it absolutely grew organically. Mistakes were made. <laughs> bodies were buried. But at the same time, Electron is great because it is the tools that we already have, and you're able to just plug in. And that is still available on Mac OS, and I just don't see it going away anytime soon. Even but, with the advent of something like Swift UI. The stainless is a good point. I mean, the person that actually cr- made a- a Automator work and it empowered it inside the company was fired to a year and a half, two years ago. Oh, uh, yeah. We have no uh, idea if they're continuing maintaining it or anything, right. right? So at some level, we're like, mm. And the other aspect of this is that, you know, if you're a platform company like Apple is, you know, they make hardware so that other people can write software and there's a business model on top of that. In some way, you kind of want there to be holes so there, there's, there's software development to be done, right? So it's, you know, th- th- there might not be a big reason for them to keep up the PDF printing to images, that capability all function. They might not have tests to run it. They not, might be checking it. 
The truth is, if you wanted it bad enough and enough people wanted what you're doing, then Miles could build that app, right? Or you could build that app. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, so my dream, which is something that most companies would have no reason to implement, but my dream is that instead of having applications sold, instead of people talking about applications and buying applications, I'd rather buy a, a whole collection of functionality. I'd rather buy something that works as an application, but I can mix and match the parts that it came with as a user and make something that I want. But you're not talking about standard UI kit elements for in, in programming environments, right? You're not talking about having app kit. You're talking about something higher level than that, simpler plug and play, but something that a non-programmer could use, but not anybody. It's like a very interesting niche because we yeah. talked about this in the past. Yeah. I don't really understand it. Like, because in some ways I think, well, let me try to implement this. Like, what could I right, do? Which sounds so much to me like what people used Apple script back in the day for these, these endpoints for. Yeah. But the truth is that yeah. the Apple script implementation support in different operating systems, different apps is not really there. If you try to use Apple script to automate Photoshop, for example, it doesn't really work. You have to use their scripting environment. Why they do that? Well, Photoshop exists also on Windows. Right. So it's kind of like, we well, can't just do Apple script implementation. You got to do something else. So what right. is, I don't even know what they, what they wrote it in. Action script, which is derivative of JavaScript. Right. Uh, or ECMA script. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, and I actually think they're using, I think there's Lua is being used in some of them as well. I think it, it, that's Lightroom more modern, is Lua. Yeah. yeah. So, but. But the, the, the point is, there's always going to be a business reason not to do these things. So somebody's got to push back. I'd love to see Apple say in their new Swift UI that you have to expose these hooks that would allow this. You, but when you say allow this, what do you allow? The, 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 you, play, the you, button you want to send, but you want to delay it for eight hours, yeah. that, that, that implementation. You're right, the operating system could do that. You'd have to keep that app in that state and make sure the app doesn't refresh. Because what if the app just refreshes and loads to a screensaver mode? So then that button doesn't exist anymore. So you can't, you're in this weird space where you have to like kind of freeze the execution of the app and then run it later. But then depending on the app builder, so you, you really have to have the app developer be a right. part of this process. Yeah, and it has to be imposed by the the developer of the operating system. Yeah. It, so that that it's is so harder to avoid doing than it is to do. It's so funny. I think about Unix and Pipe and all of those features which work so fantastically well, but you kind of have to be a programmer mindset to use them effectively. Yeah, exactly. Can we also step back to not just the things that are potentially could be lost, but the things that are being gained. You mean like, in the lockdown and less less control for the user kind of thing? In that well, space? Well, the, the more guided path for the developer, I guess, is oh, okay. what I was thinking of. But accessibility, like yeah. user accessibility, people with um, you know visual impairments or auditory impairments or you know movement uh, issues, the new... Libraries and the new. Uh, when I'm talking about new, I mean in the last ten six, years, yeah, six to ten years. You know, are so much better, like almost immeasurably better than what was there previously. Yeah, and Apple's done some amazing inroads in that in iOS. This whole case, this idea that like, if you're going to run run test UI tests, the UI test framework is the same framework that allows it to be accessible by the blind, for example. Mm -hmm. So you're in this space where you're kind of like empowering the user, empowering the developer to make a better product, and at the same time empowering accessibility for multiple user user cases. That is amazing. And if Apple does that more on the Mac, that's a big win. 
But the way to do that is say, this is the toolkit you use. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah. Hmm. Not reinvent the wheel, which is basically what happens with a lot of developers. They're like, oh, I want to try this thing. I'm going to do it on this road that has not been already paved. But if what I'm kind of understanding from Brian's perspective, if that same thing was done with this idea of automation inherently built in, Mm -hmm. which is very similar to accessibility, right? Because when you're talking about accessibility features of like a screen reader, if you will, you have to have something there that is standard so the screen reader application piece can use it and read it and click the buttons and decide and all that, that stuff. And it's very similar to the automation piece, right? That maybe every button has its like kind of unique identifier that can be executed anytime. And therefore you could have that situation where you're like, I want to execute this identifier um, in 12 hours from now. Right. And there you're talking about getting developers into a collaborative mindset rather than the walled garden mindset that we've been mm-hmm. uh, well, at least large portions of the industry have been moving toward. Not all of, not all of it's, uh, computing. It's really, accessibility is a really fascinating aspect that, you know, if you don't have some kind of good people working at the company to make sure they're focusing on it, it is hard to see it as a clear uh, financial benefit. Right? And, and even then, unless you have people who have dedicated this topic, uh, have dedicated their career to this topic and have worked on it and iterated on it, and baked it in at the operating system level, the individual programmer out there just doesn't have the expertise, even if they have the desire, doesn't have the expertise to get it right. That's right. So I guess my point about the automa- about mm-hmm. automation and interoperability capabilities that Brian's kind of talking about is that I think that user base is smaller than the accessibility need user base. I would agree with that. And because of that... When you look at an individual developer, you're like, the only reason that accessibility is actually being improved is because infrastructure is being developed for them so that it's easier and better for them to do without a lot of research. Um, Then you'd have to have that same kind of implementation capability and buy-in for this automation interoperability capability that's occurring, which kind of happened for Apple, for Automator and AppleScript for a long time. But when when you start looking at, okay, well, we're going to work on the new drivers for micro-LEDs, and how those will work versus we're going to work on automation. You go, well, 90% of our population is going to benefit from the new micro LED driver capability and 4% of our population is going to support is going to use this. It's a no brainer where you put your resources. Right. So I agree that the loud audience is necessary, but I also think that, well, maybe you have a problem of it. You don't know how big the audience is because the tools aren't actually there and good for people. Right. And the 4% is a dramatically too small number. Um, one, if it's 4% for automation, no, for you for a business use case, yeah. Um, for like accessibility, for isn't four percent for accessibility about right? No. How big is accessibility? Really not because uh, for a couple of reasons. One, if you're measuring four percent, it means that you have probably already excluded a whole bunch of people through a selection bias that they're not. You've already excluded people from even participating to be able to get that number. So, so you're talking about Maggie has super large print. That's accessibility. Uh, somebody else has a home button on their screen. Um, that's accessibility. Right. We tend to think of accessibility as being, Oh, someone is blind and really accessibility includes, Oh, I'm in my mid forties and I need reading glasses. So I need my, my print larger, or I need a different color set because I am less sensitive to seeing blue contrast with blue. Yeah. The 4%, the 4% I was talking about is not about accessibility. The 4% was, I was talking about is this 
this automator desire need this this concept that ah, that sorry. Brian has about like tying things together in a more flexible way. But the, the the trick is that if that was operating the same level of access of if you will the accessibility moniker, and you can if you have an iOS device, you can kind of talk about what's in the accessibility space by just going to the settings pages and look at accessibility. There's tons of stuff there. There's more stuff there than you'd think would be there, and you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Which then and so that point of oh, I really don't understand accessibility if I don't even know the all the options, let alone how they are implemented. Right. So in that regard. It's because all that stuff has been built, and for example, you know, my wife's using the larger type, right? Mm-hmm. She wouldn't even think of that as necessarily accessibility. Of course, when we talk about it, we're like, oh, yeah, of course it's accessibility. But she's not thinking of a person that she's not thinking of herself as someone in, in need. She just needs larger text. But that exists because it was clearly something that could be benefiting a lot of people. So the question is, if you started building this automation workflow kind of stuff you're talking about, Brian, would people fall into using it more because it was there and easy at their fingertips? possible exactly and um to come at this from one more angle there's been a lot of talk over the past few years about uh people learning how to program every elementary school students should learn to program all of these kind of things that we've talked about and before and there's arguments on both sides apple has swift and they've pushed it heavily into the education space with swift playgrounds on the ipad and on the on the mac um well the way the path into programming is not learning how to do a for loop. The path into programming is wanting to have power over your computer and taking small steps. First, you use a Excel spreadsheet to be able to do something. Then you want to be able to make a form for that and so on. Why doesn't the operating system have the building blocks available to the user right away, as opposed to having to go through all these very different uh, technologies and paths? All right. Thanks, Brian. That's a good, good topic. Okay. What are you watching lately? What are you enjoying? I'm kind of, I'm a medical leave. So unfortunately I was watching way too much TV for a while and now I'm reading too much. Um, but, uh, I did catch up on the expanse because miles, you suggested I should watch mm-hmm. the expanse, which, um, is really good. Indeed. Uh, a lot of critics have loved it. In fact, it's one of the few shows that got a hundred percent on rotten tomatoes. Uh, I don't think it's that good. <laughs> I think it's protagonist... a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I think the protagonist. I'm sorry, is not hundred uh, percent. No, it, it actually did get a hundred percent on uh, the third season. It got uh, the first season only got seventy six percent, which is like a lot of. So, are you familiar? Shows out there would be like, I'd kill for seventy six. I've heard people talk about it. No, I'm not. We're not going to do any spoilers, but effectively, it's in the future where we have colonized Mars, uh, Moon. Earth is still doing okay. Yeah, it won't do any... And yeah. we have a whole bunch of people that live in the asteroid belt, and they collect... Yeah, raw materials. ...from the asteroid belt, and uh, that's the human race, if you will. And, of course, there is the powerhouse of Mars, the powerhouse of Earth, and the kind of non-planet dwellers that are a whole bunch of orbiting uh, parts of the right. asteroid and, belt. And we're not spoiling anything because this is baked into the, the plot line, but the idea of, like, you know, you have... A colony. What happens if the colony wants to become independent? Um, vassal states, yeah, yeah, things like that, and also has really cool things like instead of hand waving away a lot of the the science and going, we have warp drives. They don't. They they say they describe it as technology that um, we don't have, but it's still based upon fundamental principles like. You are, you know, making yourself go, and you have a certain acceleration curve. And, and how do they have gravity in space? Well, it's not some magical, you know, gravity machine that you see in most sci-fi shows. It's they have gravity because they are constantly accelerating. Right. 
Um, whether they're starting or stopping. They're, they're assuming the basic physics principles can't be broken. Right. And they, they even do this thing, if they want to accelerate more than the human body can handle, they inject their bodies with this weird liquid so that the brain doesn't, you know, destroy itself, I guess, in impact right. in high Gs. So it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Like, from a sci-fi perspective, it's pretty good. Um, gr- what is up and down on the ship and how that works? A little weird. Um, not exactly right. They should probably have a lot more body support and bone support when they're doing high G maneuvers because they're like sitting in chairs that don't have side rests and your head would just fall off to the side. I, we're thought, the, about, I know, thought the chairs actually kind of adjusted to possibly, yeah. But there's a few things like that. But that's nitpicking, and they're doing a really good job. Yeah. And there's this film noir to it, right? The the main private investigator is like has a has a hat. He's investigating in that kind of slow pace. He's a drunk. Yeah, yeah. it's geopolitical. Like, intrigue it's spycraft it's a detective story it's you know a sociological experiment they do a whole lot of work with regard to a um language patois so it's no longer you know a standard for example english it's now this uh, i don't want to say mutated but i mean because everything is mutation but it's it's very it's whatever it's what happens when human beings are geographically separated from one another on earth and if you separate them by millions of kilometers, of course you're going to have. Okay, so you're way on this. I would not give it 100%, um, but I found it fun. Uh, however, it was canceled and it was over. Third season was the end season. Well, but yes, I, I heard a rumor it. that Bezos got into it and liked it and was like, we're redoing this again. Right. It's true at all. It's that, it's that whole thing of like the, the billionaire was like, mm, if only a media company would do that. Oh, wait, I own a media company. Did, did, did he actually decide to do that? Is that, oh, yeah, is that yeah, true? It was, yeah, it was because he was a fan. He, he, he pushed to have it picked up again. Okay, now so I So it got like picked it. up for a fourth season. It's now being advertised. And it's being filmed or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. And now, well, apparently it's already been filmed. Now oh, they've, cool. they've given like the trailer and they're probably doing post, uh, doing sure. post-production editing. Uh, but they've also announced that they're doing a season five. They've signed on for doing it. So it's like, yes, we're going to have it for even longer. And uh, Well, hopefully they don't jump the shark in season four. <laughs> <laughs> but it's that there's so many shows that I feel like are really like scratching that itch. Yeah. Um, the, the Martian, the movie, was the same way for me of I want a story that is compelling but isn't just complete fanciful yeah like yes we have light light to be dry like i wanted something that has some basis in a drama of reality here's my take on expanse um i did other things while i watched it that's the big tell for me of whether i'm really enjoying something am i also drawing am i also you know playing around some code organizing some photos checking email that kind of stuff i was doing that with expanse so all right yeah um, I was kind of laughing about the fact that the the Martian ship used the same 3D mouse that I use for drafting in SketchUp. <laughs> um, and of course, Expanse, you can actually watch all the seasons that are available right now, the three seasons, if you've got Amazon Prime, because it's part of the Prime video, which is actually part of Amazon Prime, which no one knows about, <laughs> weirdly. <laughs> Brian, do you watch any TV? I, I only watch what my, my wife is watching. And what is your family watching right now? Um or has watched recently. You know, I think most of the things are done. Yeah, you know, funny no, that I, I, we this are not. question of what what are you watching is a standard question at Netflix. We do this all the time. <laughs> People come in the room. What do you watch? What do you like? Yeah, considering the amount of TV I watch, maybe I should work at Netflix because I'd, I I would totally be like, yeah, I'm giving feedback on this. Oh no, I mean, I, yeah, I don't watch that much TV. I, 
I, I don't know. It's just, it's so hard to not, to be passive and to not be creating things. Of course, I'm sitting in the space right now where I'm like completely passive for a long time. I can't even lift things. Right? Well, on Netflix, I've really enjoyed the roster of David Attenborough specials. Um, so if I type in like Attenborough and then do a search, even if they aren't David Attenborough, they're inspired by David Attenborough or something similar to it. You're welcome. And, yeah. <laughs> and I love watching those with my daughter. Yeah. It doesn't feel quite like the, the idiot tube, the, the idiot box that... Oh, no. Well, you know, you're learning about the world. It's kind of cool. And she actually really did enjoy the uh, Bear Grylls uh, Choose Your Own Adventure survival thing. I'm glad you like that. Um, And I actually would like to see more of that because it did seem like it had a fair amount of uh, educational aspect to it. And, you know, it'd be nice to see more things that were like that. Even if they were unrealistic that you'd ever be in that situation, but learning about, you know, like, what would happen in these extreme situations? How would you deal with it? And um, I don't know. It, there's another part of me that's wondering, like, it would be gruesome, but what what would happen if you had one of those choose-your-own-adventures with first aid? We call them branching narratives. If you had a branching narrative of you're in an emergent situation and you have to do disaster recovery. So seems- educational branching narratives? Yeah. Well, I mean... Isn't that what the Bear Grylls one it was? It was absolutely an educational branching narrative. What would you do in this situation? You have to get the medicine to the people in the remote village. It's called Bill Grylls, You versus Wild. Yes. You have to survive if you're dropped in the middle of the, the snow. Like, yeah. How do okay. you track someone? Uh, it's kind of cool. So I still haven't watched, what was it, Brandersnatch? Brandersnatch. Brandersnatch. I keep yeah. meaning to do that. Um, I, I haven't watched a lot of branching narrative at all, but... To me, that walking that line between a passive watching a story and interacting with it in just a little bit like that, it's totally unappealing. You, you, you like you that idea? You haven't watched any. What? You haven't watched any. How, but but that's the thing. The reason why I haven't watched it is completely unappealing. Dude, I did like three years of my life working on Branching Narrative, you jerk. <laughs> but... Only and I of, told you during that. You understand there's only six of them. You just have to watch one to have like a major percentage of what I did. Okay, okay. Years. I, I, will, I will take that homework assignment. I will watch one of them. I, I think you should watch the Black Mirror episode. See, when you're, when you're looking yeah. at it. One time it through and, or, or multiple? No, just watch it once, but watch it the group. When you're looking at just TV, you can decide whether you're going to sign up, like to do some drawing or whatever. When you have these branching narratives, you are actually fixed on it. And you're invested in it. When you make that choice, you're wondering, did I make the right choice? Like, am I about to get Bear Grylls killed? You know, like, that is that is something that I don't think should be um, dismissed with regard to how useful it could be, as I say, for, as an educational platform. Because you can't just passively watch and go like, yeah, okay, here's the... Here's driver and your safety. Here's, you know, the, the red asphalt from our childhood. You know. Oh, man. I want to talk so much about interactive titles now that I won't, <laughs> we won't dive into work. I'm off work right now. <laughs> All right. And well, I also like um, Good Omens. Oh, yeah. Good Omens was good. That, oh, that was also <clears throat> Amazon. Yeah, that's Amazon. And the reason I like it was because, um, and this is on a personal note, my daughter hit a developmental mil- milestone with it. Normally, um, she's young. Um, when she sees something that the imagery is disturbing in some way, she gets scared. She would get scared by it and pull back. It was a major push for me uh, about nine months ago to a year ago, where I got her to watch the Neverending Story. 
Because she was like, are there scary parts? And I said, yes. But sometimes the scary stuff is still really good. And so she watched it with me. And she was you know, scared with the big wolf character. And then came out of it like, oh, I really did like that. Even though there was a scary part. It was, there was a payoff for going through that. Watching Good Omens, there was some imagery in there that is disturbing to young viewers. And possibly to some older viewers as well. Um, uh, Good Omens is about the Armageddon. So yeah. you follow the lives of, of two angels, an angel, no, an and, a angel devil, and a demon, and a demon, yeah. and they are at the Garden of Eden, and they've just are kind of friends throughout time, and it's the end time. So right, it's got a, it's got a life <laughs> of Brian aspect to yeah, it yeah, as yeah. well. But yeah, no game and, yeah. and having my daughter l- watch it and go, well, that's creepy. I'm like, yeah, but it's not. And having a dialogue with her where she was recognizing, but it's on TV. It's fiction. It's not real. So it being creepy is an aesthetic judgment rather than a personal safety judgment. Mm-hmm. And that was just amazing to me. That was just fun. And that happened in the la- in a couple of days ago. Okay. So- well, since you mentioned that, I, I do have to, to say that um, my 11-year-old finally was able to watch one of the Stranger Things seasons and didn't have to uh, stop every single episode halfway through. So, not the most recent. No, no, he did. It, oh, yeah. it was the most recent series. Season, yeah. Okay, good. yeah, my daughter's not ready for Stranger Things. <laughs> I'm going to try that. But yeah. So um, if you didn't know, and even if you did know, at Netflix, if you go to Netflix.com, you log into your account, and you can actually go and find viewing activity. So you can see what you've watched. You can also see what your kids have watched if you're curious. <laughs> if you have their own profiles. So I'm looking on this. It looks like we've watched Queer Eye. Uh, season four, quite a bit of it. Uh, Master of None, season two, some of it. Uh, some comedians, Chris Rock's uh, Tambourine's really funny. Uh, Whitney Cummings stuff uh, was fun. Lucifer, have you watched Lucifer? Mm. Eh. Mm. Eh, I know. I've only seen the season one. Um, some of I season thought I had a promise and then I felt like it went a little too much soap opera. And then comedians in cars getting coffee, which is really fun. Even though I don't like Seinfeld very much. <laughs> That's a mean thing to say. He's fine. Comedians in Cars, of course, is highlighting other uh, comedians, which is really fun. Okay, so that's a little bit of what we watched. Let's move on, shall we? I guess, you know, this one is yours as well, Miles. It's about ransomware in Louisiana. Yeah, this is an interesting thing where if a state or a region declares a state of emergency, it's usually because of, you know, there are wildfires. Like in California, there was... You know, hurricanes on the East Coast. There's or natural disasters. Yeah, yeah. Major earthquake, tornadoes going through. You know, the Midwest, that type of thing. Volcanoes in Hawaii. So it really did pique my interest to see a headline says that Louisiana declares state of emergency in response to a ransomware attack. Yikes! What was taken down? Hospitals, government, police Uh, force. (laughs) <laughs> the DMV. <laughs> They're actually being a bit cagey as to how far uh, it went, but it hit at least three public school districts. Mm-hmm. A lot of times with the ransomware, just to get people up to speed, is that it will infect the system and then encrypt your data, sending out a note to you saying, you can either pay us this money and we'll send you the decryption key, or you've lost all of your information. This comes. This brings in a couple of questions. Like one, 
a lot of these municipalities, a lot of these places that have this huge computing infrastructure really need to have some type of disaster recovery in much the same way that you need to have a disaster plan for a hurricane mm-hmm. or for um, earthquake preparedness. That means multiple backups in multiple locations, as an example. Right. And, and backups that can't be um, encrypted. And honestly, I don't think that a prepare, preparation for ransomware or just like if your computing infrastructure gets compromised – uh, should be anywhere near as expensive or expansive as is necessary for a hurricane. But I don't it, believe that they're on is, the same. It is a different design of your infrastructure. So if you do a physical it is absolutely it's necessary, but I don't believe that it needs to be at the same scale f- in terms of financials, in terms of the scope of what you need to plan for. I think that it's a, a much more narrowly focused um, point of attack, like the the area of attack, the 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 number of people that need to be involved to get it back up is much smaller and the the human toll is much lower than a hurricane. You're thinking about a centralized data recovery system and solution. I'm thinking of my time at University of Santa Cruz, uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, and we had, you know, uh, a tape backup system that backed up a whole bunch of people's individual laptops that was only in one department, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't the campus-wide, it was one department. So that didn't have a fire protection backup because theoretically people's laptops and a fire in that building wouldn't happen at the same time. There's only one copy of it in one location. And then we kept some copies, but then we erased copies regularly. So Mm -hmm. if encryption occurred on a person's laptop and was actually being encrypted and got overwritten, that kind of complexity is not, it's, it's something that now has to be handled, obviously. But I could definitely imagine a school, like an elementary, a school district with like maybe three high schools and two junior highs and a few elementary schools. How many people are there? Three people doing but this all is what I mean. That? Like it needs to be something comprehensive, and just to, in the same way, those schools, those few schools, would not be able to handle a comprehensive hurricane preparedness right regimen right. either. That needs to be part of a larger plan, o- overall plan. Yeah, kind of kind of suggested by the state in how to do this. Yeah. Right, and um, and it needs to be followed through. And it's going to have to deal with heterogeneous systems that uh, you, you can't just count on one operating system or one vendor. And it has to come into the who has access to what. Because, you know, ransomware on a system that is mostly Chromebooks is a lot harder to implement. It's a lot harder to get, you know, well, to put into Because Google's doing their job. Thanks for the Louisiana thing. That's kind of a bummer. I think that's probably a pretty serious problem for declaring a national uh, a state disaster. Well, yeah. I mean, just because, like, how do you get the records for all the kids that have been there, all the grades that have been in there? Sure. It's a major, you know, problem for people. But it's also procedural rather than actual human life at risk. That's why I was trying to make a distinction between oh, well, a, a hurricane and the threat that poses yeah, for not preparing that, for that. I don't know. And, you think about flooding. All the dams and stuff are controlled by computers. So if those are ransomware, I mean... You do have potential physical threats that could you could take out electrical grids and people would die, right? So there are computer controlled things that can cause death. And yes, I'm not saying that sense. one that ransomware uh, with regard to computers has no threat. I'm just talking about putting the tech industry in its proper perspective as to how important it is okay. and how Fair the enough. threats are for you know for natural disasters. So thank you, Miles. General discussion, the phone. Do you guys answer your phone if you don't know who it is calling? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, only if it piques my interest because I've had a lot of medical 
call, so I don't necessarily know whether I know the, that number. So you might try it. Yeah. How frequently when you try it, is it a failure? Or should I say, uh, it's not something you want? Best case is half the calls are calls I would never take if I knew who they were. Oh, see, that's pretty high, I think. I'm, I'm at the point where, pretty much, unless I'm expecting a call from somebody, um, it's, it's always, you know, a spam. If I don't know the number, then it goes to voicemail. Most of the time, they don't leave a voicemail, and it's like, all right, wasn't important. So if if there is a voicemail, I look to see what the voicemail is, and if if it's one of those like you have been targeted for like you're you know, for a felony if your social security number you know has been compromised, and blah, 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 you know the no, that's scare the big, tactics. That's yeah. the big one. That's all of my ones are either credit related or social security related scams. Right. Yeah. That's one where I'm like, oh yeah, I'm glad I didn't take that call. I look at it at my leisure. Um, if the same number calls me, you know, multiple times over the course of a week, then I will pick up. Hmm. Um, I, I just, that doesn't leave a message is what I mean. No, I, I got it. Um, because then I'll go like, okay, then I'll take, and you know, half the time there, it's still a scam and they haven't been caught. Usually by that time, the phone number will have been flagged and, I, and the phone, know, they'll, the, they'll the stop. phone thing I did recently that actually was, uh, supposedly useful to me a company called me and it was nissan fulfillment services okay and they called me and said hi you know i'm looking for lyle troxel and i said yeah that's that's me they said great just to confirm who you are can you give me some information about yourself and i said no that's not how it works you called me so you have to confirm who you are (laughs) and he did not understand this idea and we got in this debate. I said, can you tell me what this is about? I don't know what Nissan Fulfillment Services is. I do have a Nissan car. It is, I do have payments that I pay to Nissan. It's, I don't think I've ever seen Nissan Fulfillment Services, but it sounds kind of like a payment issue around my car. You know, mm-hmm. it probably is. could also be uh, a, a company that I've had my car fixed at before, and they're offering a deal, and it's an upsell. I have or it could be like Honda with me, always trying to go like, there's, you can get There's a new, new one. Right. So, you could pay the exact same payment. Starting over again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he's, you know, going through this process of trying to get me to give divulge information. I'm thinking, you know, what kind of information would you want from me? And you know, I'm okay with giving my zip code. There's a few things I'm okay with giving, mostly because if you do a search on me online, you'll find a lot of information. Mm-hmm. Where I live is one of them, no big deal. So I'm, you know, debating just breaking down, but I kind of think I know what it is and he won't fulfill it and all that. And we have this really frustrating, both of us are frustrated and I just like, okay, sorry. And he's like, we'll just call this number. I'm like, well, you can't give me the number. He's like, well, just look it up. I'm like, okay, if it looks reasonable. You know, like, we're trying to do that. So I finally hang up, and I'm thinking, you know, it's probably some payment thing. So sure enough, I check. Sure enough, my the auto bill payment system that was supposed to be working isn't working anymore. I'm delinquent in payments. They didn't email me about it. They called me. It's like, wh- why is this failing, right? First off, I don't have that phone number on my phone. That I even answered was odd, right? Mm-hmm. And then I had this complete failure of communication because, of course, I can't trust who they are, and they can't trust who I am. So I left with that thinking, God, I really don't want to do business with phones. Well, wait, I don't want to do business with phones. I don't really, like, the only people I ever want to talk to on the phone are people that are like, I want to have a conversation with. You guys, my, my sister, you know, like, there's people. Mm-hmm. All of those people are in my address book, and I know their phone. So, it, is the phone have any value? It seems like it's kind of a waste. Additionally, all the people that I might want to have a voice phone call with, I can also do, like, four other ways. Right, I can. <laughs> there's lots Face of other ways to do that. And FaceTime, hangouts, hangouts and, and yeah, all these other things. So I just kind of question: is is the phone dead? Is it this point where it's just not? And I'm no, not talking about absolutely, texting. Absolutely not. It's not dead. Well, to to you, it might be very much on the decline, but phone calls are not dead. 
Well, the other thing I've noticed is that more and more people have got have dropped their home phone, right? Because the cost is not worth it. It well, already has a cell phone. Yeah, no, the home phone is dead. Yeah, you have the, a landline, yeah. Do you have a landline? Uh, no, I haven't had a real landline in a decade, and I haven't used a landline as a landline in over 20 years. Even people I know that had landlines for really good reasons have stopped. Yeah, I had a landline 15 years ago, and it just it was bundled with the internet connection, right. so I just had it, you know, because I had to get one with, with the DSL. So if... The phone is now just a cell phone, and it is the worst interface in communication of the 50 variant of communication interface you have on that phone. What good is it? So uh, one question, if you're not using phone and somebody needs to reach you, the other one would be email, which is text, email, Slack, Facebook, Messenger, Instagram. No, 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 a business. I mean, a legitimate business inquiry sure. um, they from your lender. Pretty much all the businesses I have have apps, and they can send me notifications. Ah, well, there you go. I'm just saying, like, I don't want people using my phone. Like, the phone is kind of the worst of all of them. I can't trust who it is. I don't know. Email is, somebody can spoof email, anybody's number. email is kind of sketchy. Exactly. That's my point. The sure. phone and email are now pretty much at the same par, though. But I would say email is even better because it's not real-time. Just the real-time delay, like Miles is doing of checking his voicemail later. It's, he's just making it synchronous, which is like the one benefit of the phone is it's Well, I'm only doing it for the async. numbers that I don't recognize. People call me all the time, and I answer the phone, and I talk to them. Absolutely. And so in some regard, it's that, it's that ability to talk to people that you know, which is useful. But outside of that, it's not a very useful medium, right? It's like failed its medium. Okay, but since it's useful in the sense for phone calls, it's beneficial. I don't know. I think I could do without voice phone. It would be a little harder, but I could do it. You're also a technocrat. That's true. Well, he's not claiming that the entire culture is done with it. Uh, you were I, kind of leaning toward I, that well, argument that my there. Point I was is sniffing that, that here, there. Here's the thing. I don't want to sound self-grandizing, but we're early adapters of things, right? So if we're all kind of going, yeah, we only use the phone for people we know, well, that means in five years, all, everybody will only use it that way. Unless it fundamentally gets changed, it gets fixed somehow. Like a better caller ID system would be darn good. Like a, a hardened caller ID, where when you you're you're the only way to get caller ID information to get through is by the provider that has a relationship with you, and the only thing you can put in there is what you want to put in there. Mm-hmm. Of Amazingly course, useful. Of course, you know that's not going to happen the way our telecommunication right. companies work together. <laughs> that's right. They're not going to happen. Yeah, so, it'd be awesome for you know. Oh, you want to block the caller ID? That's fine. You just don't ring me. Like, yeah. It would be awesome if it just... Yeah. One know, of the things that's kind of funny me. with my caller ID is my phone is actually um, a Netflix provide phone. So when I call and you don't have me in your address book, I show up as Netflix Corp calling. Nice. And so I regularly will call people and then you know leave a message or call them back again, whatever. And the second time they're like, is that you, Lyle? Because <laughs> people are kind of funny. All right. So the phone's not dead. So says both of you. But I think it's dying. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it, it's pretty much dead to me, but whatever. Miles Elam, Brian Young, thank you so much for joining me on Geekspeak today. Thanks for having it's us over. Pleasure. It's good to catch up. Geekspeak is registered service mark of David Lawrence and is used with permission. And Geekspeak is Creative Commons Attribution 3.0. You can use our stuff any way you like. Just give us some credit. The title for today's episode is Micro Extensions Expand State of Emergency. Thank you, Greg Merkley in Canada, for our title. If you'd like to give us feedback, ask us questions, participate in a show, or suggest a 
person for the show, please feel free to contact us. Go to geekspeak.org and click on the contact page, or you can find us on Twitter. I'm Lyle on Twitter, Miles Elam, and Brian C. Young, or Brian Cordan Young? Twitter, Brian C. Young. Brian C. Young. And of course, you can tweet us. Geekspeak Tweets, I think, is our Twitter handle for Geekspeak. And now I will say, sorry, that's the close, <laughs> that we do have some post-show. Miles Elam, thank you for joining me on Geekspeak. Always a pleasure. Brian Young, thank you for joining me on Geekspeak. Thanks for having us over. I had beer at work today. Can you talk about it? Company meeting. Two o'clock to three o'clock, something like that. And it was at Poor downtown. Poor Brewery. Man. You know, Brian, you know why his job is more awesome than ours? Because he works in Santa Cruz? Because he works downtown Santa Cruz. (laughs) Yeah, for like one-third the money. (laughs) Miles, a couple episodes I recorded ago was with Brad Smith, this guy that runs Simplecast, CEO of Simplecast. And he was talking about how Google has just uh, started doing audio-to-text translations of podcasts and surfacing matches in their feed to play the episode, autoplayers in Google's uh, hmm. search results. So I tried it, and it's been a while since I recorded the episode before my surgery, and so I tried it out while I was editing, and it didn't work on Geekspace. I went to Google's uh, dev pages you know, for webmasters and such and looked around and found out, oh, you have to have a link, um, alternate content, link to the podcast from the homepage of the, of the search results so that Google picks up the podcast and starts reading it. So I start looking into it, and I just need to add that one little tag to the HTML document of Geekspeak. To do that, I need to publish to Geekspeak server, and I do that with Catapistrano, which is a auto-deploy tool. Um, however, I my current laptop doesn't have Geekspeak working on it. And I actually recently saw there's a security vulnerability in one of these little abstract, ob- obscure gems, and the only fix was a new version, and that version required a new version and version blah, blah, blah. And I'm stuck in this updating hell of, of rails. So I was kind of debating um, moving forward with your stuff instead of me read, like, I don't know what I'm going to do at this point. Mm-hmm. One of the ways to do it is to build a brand new Rails 5 app and slowly pull stuff over manually and kind of do it myself. I don't even have, I don't have, uh, now have uh, Postgres 10 on this machine. And um, let me see if Greg can hear us. Can you hear us, Greg? And Postgres 12 is in beta. It's in beta, so I could do Postgres 11. Mm-hmm. Okay. I just picked one that seemed kind of stable, and they didn't seem to have eleven in their dock. And the docs I had for Brew didn't exist there, but oh, okay, they had like ten, and they had head of trunk. And I'm like, oh, I'll do stable, but I didn't take a look. I'm really becoming super bullish on GraphQL, just because I loathe ORMs in general now, and. Yeah, I <laughs> GraphQL is just this breath of fresh well, air. Really like funny, I get exactly I, what I want and no more, no less. One of the things I was thinking about is like, well, I could use React and GraphQL and you know do something of that nature and just kind of rebuild the whole thing, which would be kind of cool. Assuming that I could do it with like a group of people and it would be fun, it wouldn't be like a lonely project. But if you're bullish on GraphQL, you would be willing to make a GraphQL front end for Postgres effectively. Uh, one already exists. All you have to do is make the database schema, and oh, cool. it will automatically figure out all the relationships and publish it. And is it only Postgres that's producing that interface? Only Postgres. Meaning you don't have to have a web server in front of it. It's Postgres. Uh, or no, you, you, would need, you would need Node.js and it oh, okay. uses So it's Node.js. Yeah. Okay. So I thought about that. And as I was thinking about it, oh, the one thing that's interesting about the current website is that 
We have no client-side rendering. We just have server-side rendering. We don't actually need a client-side rendering tool. It's static pages, effectively. It should be static pages. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at it, I'm like, well, that's kind of why Rails is both great and also horrible because there's no data transport layer and view layer. It's all one thing. It's all in Ruby. But the problem with that is we don't really need uh, dynamic pages and being rendering it every single time a request happens. It would be great to have static pages. So I'm like thinking about that space. Well, and, isn't that essentially what happens when you use, what is it, is it memcache? What, what is it that caches We could, we could do a cache layer as well, yeah. that's true. I, I tried turning the cache layer at one, one point and I ran into some problems. But uh, just in um, Nginx, you can turn the cache and say, you know, only hit these pages every seven days or whatever, and that would be fine. That would be a way to do it. If Rails was working fine right now, I would continue doing what I'm doing and maybe turn on caching or deal with it. We don't have a lot of traffic. It doesn't matter. But, but since it's broken, <laughs> now I'm like, okay, well, what do I do? What do I want to invest in? And I feel like doing Node would be kind of more better for me. More better? I'd enjoy it more. We're, uh, the back end at, at Netflix is all switching from Groovy to Rails. Or to, uh, sorry, not Rails. <laughs> Don't quote me on that. Groovy to JavaScript. Yeah. And so when I was, right when I was leaving, I started up in the implementation of some paths inside uh, Node, and it just felt great. But I don't want to do that alone. So, Miles, how, how into that are you? Could you put a couple hours to it a week? Yes. But, uh, yes, I'm fine with data layer. I'm fine with the GraphQL layer. I'm fine with playing around with you with, for example, um, Vue, which is a very lightweight uh, templating and CRUD engine. Uh, On top of Node.js? That's reading from... That would read from GraphQL. I mean, Vue is like... Um, think of it like React or Angular or whatever. It's just that it's... Um, Think of it like Angular, except a lot more lightweight. Okay. Well, so the thing is, we don't need any client-side rendering, really. Like, we've never done any client-side rendering, except for, like, edit fields and stuff. Right. And um, a little bit of updates. But it would be nice, just that I would... And the most important thing is the SEO, right? So I want server-side rendering. Or maybe maybe all searchers at this point can actually render some JavaScript and we'll render client-side stuff and parse it that way and index it that way. I'm not sure. there are tools for just pre um pre-generating a site yeah based upon that's dynamic to, to do that but yeah um well that's actually why i was leaning on react because react has a server-side render path as well but honestly i i can show you some graphs with regard to performance of post graphical and you can just be like yeah it's not going to be a performance problem no i'm not worried about the performance what i'm worried about is having an abstract layer of graphql in between my data receiving and data sending because then all the rest of it's me hacking away at client-side code to edit and update and all that. So like in the past, you've done a really great job of doing rendering of content from the database. And I do all the editing tools. Ah. So it's like, okay, how, how hard will it be to post to a, you know, get the authentication model functioning well, all of that. This is good because this is the part that I wanted to find an excuse to play with it. And it's hard to find that excuse uh, at work when yeah. you're trying well, to... Well, why, why Vue and not React or Angular? Why does it matter? Uh, Angular is very opinionated, has a very high barrier to entry, so we have neither of us are Angular experts, and so we'd have to learn a whole lot and try to get it, and it'd be a very heavyweight solution to what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, React is... <clears throat> this is on a personal note. I really don't like JSX. 
and JSX. That's just because you haven't used it. It's awesome. No, 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 no. And JSX is the simple way to do something that I wouldn't want to do anyway. I don't like so mixing. Do you know what JSX? I was about to ask. Go for it, Miles. Uh, it's a conglomeration of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript all together into a single component. And does you it like it, merging your structure with your data? That is and not re- what JSX is. That's a bad way Rea- to describe it. React is it's not. Very- it's not CSS as well in there. It J- absolutely JSX, is. No, JSX is a uh, a pre compiler that then compiles into JavaScript, and so you write it and it looks like HTML, but what its output is actually JavaScript uh, functions. Right, but it's JavaScript generating HTML, generating. No, it's JSX generating HTML. But but no, it's just, no. yeah, JSX generating JavaScript, the JavaScript that generates HTML. Right, yes. and I and don't... CSS, but using DOM-type tools for CSS. Right, I don't so, much But the, the JavaScript is generated client-side. I mean, sorry, the, the HTML that J- JavaScript's generating is done client-side. Yes. Yes, the HTML is done client-side unless you render it on the server, which definitely happens. But the JSX file is an extension type, and when you open it up, it's not valid J- uh, JavaScript. It's this other thing. And all that really is there is blocks of HTML, which when you run the par- compi- compiler, it takes that HTML and turns it into JavaScript that would create the HTML. And so it's it's this weird stage where you're like, I want to do a div with an attribute in it, right? And so you've written that, and then when it compiles, you look at the JavaScript, and it's actually a JavaScript function that says create div, and and so on. So it produces pure JavaScript that will run on the client with nothing else, no templating or anything. But it is a little weird to have this kind of non-JavaScript file. You yeah. get very used to it, though, doing it. Yeah, I much prefer Vue, especially for its simplicity, and for mm-hmm. what we're going to be using it for. Simple, I believe, is better. Yeah. Because the site well, I mean, is I more think, simple. I think, yeah, okay. Um, and I like that it does have a bit more separation in terms of the HTML versus the CSS. You know, uh, it is really compelling, though, I have to say, about getting a data layer in there that is standalone, is that we can write other clients for the site. Yes. Um, That's what's nice, really, really What's nice about GraphQL is that you have this standard spec. Yeah. It's not an implementation. It's a spec. Um, and that's something that I really don't like about most object relational mapping tools. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm I'm fine with that. I've done a lot of GraphQL at work, so that's fine. Uh, you remember, uh, what is the thing that, uh, Falcor that you went mm-hmm. to a talk or something? Falcor is, uh, uh, GraphQL is kind of like Facebook's Falcor. No. Right. No, no, no. I've looked into, uh, GraphQL. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. I, it, it, it sounds wonderful. And I wish cool I had client. it. I wish I had it work because I keep relying on the uh, server guy and to do stuff. Really cool Swift libraries for GraphQL, yeah. so we could you know make an iPhone app for us to be editing and such. The pages would be kind of fun. Right. What we do at work a lot of times is you have your database layer, and then you have your object relational mapping tool that gets it into yep. the system, and then you have a data validation tool, for example, a Joy J O I yep. Joy models to be able to validate that the JavaScript that's coming in is correct before you pass it on to the persistence layer. And okay. then you pass the joy models over to the client side so that the client side can have some type of validation on it. And we're talking and, TypeScript too, right? Sure. And we're talking Yarn or we're talking NPM? Can we do the NPM, please? NPM. Great. That's fine. <laughs> I use NPM. I don't much use Yarn. Well, Yarn was better for a period of time, and then NPM fixed things. So. Right. Okay. So, um, And when I whenever I look at... GraphQL, especially the PostgreSQL, which connects up, look introspects through um, PostgreSQL to find out what all your stuff is, so you don't have to write yep. your GraphQL 
schema uh, manually is that it switches that model to be the client determines what it wants and it's part of a query. So if the query were invalid, if you were trying to send bad data, it would catch you before it tries sending it down to the data layer because it's part of the schema that okay. is stored within GraphQL. So this yeah. GraphQL schema or Postgres schema? Wait, does, does the GraphQL schema get generated by the data structure of Postgres? Yes. Oh, that is awesome. Okay, that's pretty cool. And so you have this validation layer that can travel that could all be, the way up. And that, can that render schema data in multiple formats? So we can, we can do a client-side rendering of that schema in JavaScript and, then a, and also one in Swift? Client-side rendering of... So when you, when you, take, when you want to use uh, GraphQL mm-hmm. in like iOS, this is the, the, mm-hmm. the familiarity I have. I did it in Python too, but I just, I just hacked it myself. So it didn't mm-hmm. get these sweet benefits. We can, um, we're currently working on one of the apps. Uh, we auto-generate client-side models that are the GraphQL schema. So when you say, hey, give me you know, a person object, what's actually happening is last time someone t- modified the GraphQL schema, we rendered a, uh, a compiler that created Swift files, header files, if you will, mm-hmm. that define that data. Yes. And then when you make a request, it populates that class and actually gives you that class. So you actually right. get real classes. It, so auto-completion works and everything, and you're not even really thinking about it in the class. Right. Side. Is that a standard way to set up uh, a GraphQL on the client, or is that just an extra layer Generally, that was done in that case? You figure out what your GraphQL schema is, you export it out, and then you say you send it to any number of generating tools to say, give me something based upon so this. So it's, it's, it's standard to generate. I wasn't sure if it was okay. So yes, <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the whole point behind GraphQL being a spec is that you're saying this is your endpoint. How you get there and what you do with it after is immaterial, in much the same way that HTTP is immaterial. So, so I'm not so, really, care how yeah. you get there. So, so if I understand GraphQL, and I, if I understand what you said, you can have this file that defines exactly what data you want to search and have returned. Is that file something that can be used? in a Swift app and over in a web client app and over in a, a Java app. And they, they use that same definition, uh, but then create their own local models based on Well, that. let's head down the rabbit hole here. Let's, let's talk about what it actually is. So when we talk about GraphQL, let's take a step back and talk about a system that a lot of people, a lot more people are familiar with, which okay. is rest and rest. You have the HTTP verbs, uh, get put post and delete to do your items. And they all have, for example, the same, just about the same URL. Uh, the post would be slightly different for you when you're creating something, but you would say, for example, with GeekSpeak, you could have something like uh, episode slash, you know, Key. I forget what the, it's the name data, is, but yeah, the, the date for the date, that. Yeah. And if you did a put on that, that would do an update. If you did a delete, obviously it would delete the entry. If you did a get, which is what you normally have when you, enter in a URL in a browser, it will give you the information from the database mm-hmm. or from the server. And that is the typical way that people have made API servers. Um, gra- and and you know. very clever people with REST have built schema definitions for the REST protocol. Yes. So 4D, well, for example, with the, Wakanda the had that. Fun, yeah. that. That's a standard spec as well now. Yeah. yeah. And people also use uh, Swagger and then uh, Open API spec as... Uh, superseded that so that you had something that told you what are all the places that you can touch this. The downside to it is in your data layer, you make the table 
And then further up, you make your model that uses that. And then you make your REST endpoint that says, okay, now it's going to use this model to then talk to the database. You're basically writing the same uh, access point three yep. times yeah. in three slightly different ways. And, and this was my my concern actually about going to something like GraphQL is that, well, I don't really need this like intermediary, you know, this standalone data layer existing, but the idea that it kind of being generated off Postgres reduced that question. And then the benefit of being like make an iOS app and use the same interface is really cool. Okay. So go on. And then there's the aspect of, um, when you are dealing with a rest interface, the person who writes the system is defining that API. And if there has to be some other way to access that data, you have to get the back-end developer on board to say, okay, now I'm going to explicitly put in the time to make this REST interface and make sure that that's tested for get, put, post. You, you also have a problem of like, if you want a person, when you say get person, mm-hmm. all the fields that are appropriate for person are going to come down. So lots of stuff you might not need if you're just right. looking for a name. The server side is defining the API and you that's, that's right. what you get. Right. No, no and so more. what it starts occurring is you start getting like, mutated rest interfaces that are like simple person which has like less data in it and like complete person right so that you're actually kind of duplicating your your path or your ui team um or person mm-hmm. depending on how big your organization is and the back end people you start getting out of sync the api starts growing but the ui hasn't gone around to it or the ui people have like this thing ready and they're waiting for the api to come into place graphql kind of inverts that relationship so instead of having that git put post delete in there um, and multiple endpoints, multiple URLs to access different resources, you have a single entry point, which is GraphQL, and you are passing queries to it. So the client side is determining exactly what it wants. More complex queries. So you can say, under the personscape, I want first name and last name. And under the address area, I want zip code. Right. And then and that's not, all you get back. Right. And not just individual units. You, we're talking about relationships. So you could say, I want the Geek Speak episode from, you know, the last Geek Speak episode with all of its participants and the metadata for those participants in there, along with the geek bits, the news stories, all, all down the chain as a single request. And that query is very similar to the JSON, uh, that you get back. Mm-hmm. The structure of the query almost exactly maps the structure of the data, uh, the response that you get back. So there's no question anymore of having to look at, for example, a REST open API spec to say, okay, if I hit this endpoint URL, what's the JSON that I'm going to get right. back? What's the XML it, or JSON? It's pseudo-structured the way you did it. But also the definition of the schema, the thing that actually gets created and what you can interface on stuff, gets built by the server. Yes. And then you can say, what's the schema? And then from that schema, you can generate code that will give you client-side models. Right. Which is really like the magic part of it in some ways. Right. The, the back-end developer doesn't abdicate any re- responsibility for making sure that only certain data is available. Uh, they still have to say, okay, this table is, should be made visible. This one should not be. Password, um, fa- password field is not readable. Right. When uh, they pass an adjacent web token for authentication, that it should they should only be retrieving back those entries that that user has, is authorized to read, for example, or to update. Um, that is all still the case. However, it takes... You only have to do it, for example, in the case of PostgreSQL with the GraphQL layer, you only have to do that at the database level. 
and then that will bubble itself up. And you're able to say, like, okay, omit this table or omit these columns right. from the GraphQL schema so that they are not exposed, they are not yeah. surfaced. And you can throw in some sort of a server um, function to any call so that you can act on that data that's coming one way or the other. Right. The client side says, this is the data that I need. This is all the data I need to render this page, for example. So there's no, like, uh, one of the things that happens with REST often is this request amplification. You need some bit of data on this page. So you make this, you hit this endpoint, then that endpoint, and now you have some of this data from this user. So now you're going to hit these endpoints. And so you make 12 or 15 requests just to fulfill one page. Right. In some cases, unless and in, in a Rails yeah. environment where we don't actually have a data layer and and the, ven- the rendering layer, the controller and everything is all in the same memory space, so execution space, um, we still have multiple requests to the server because of the way the ORM actually works. So you're still doing the situation where you're kind of like saying, "Give me all the bits." Oh, give me all the authors of the bits. Like there's just kind of the bits are right. new stories we do. The Which other is thing commonly referred to as the n plus one problem. Right. The other thing I've noticed, and I'm not at all a Rails developer, but I have had to look at some of the logs and some of the um, what's going on when I've made the request, is the SQL queries that are produced from Rails just look monstrous as far as how many tables, joins, blah, 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 it goes through. Yeah. Which, on one side, is necessary. If you're grabbing a whole lot of related data, if you're doing an eager fetch, that is just what happens. And a lot of times that SQL query may be optimized for a particular database engine. So it's going to look ugly to human eyes. And it's especially going to look ugly if you are not uh, deeply into making SQL yourself. And I got to say that if you're seeing like lots of joins across tables and stuff to get your data, that's actually probably efficiently using the ORM or more oh, efficiently. Yeah. yeah, it could be much worse. It could be that it's like find all the people and then get the IDs and then now, now get all the stories. So like, and it would be back and forth and be much worse. Some of the GeekSpeak stuff looks really good. I've, I've honed it. Some of it looks bad because of that same problem. Um, if we were to migrate to this scenario, would you be willing to just shepherd the Postgres database so that it got structured in a little bit better way. Yes. You did that a little bit. And then the other aspect of it is how quickly can we be creating new episodes and publishing? That's the big stopper for me. Like we can't switch to that unless we can actually make new episodes. There's the question. And we probably should have tools for just looking at what's the new structure, what's the old structure, and get it to the point where we can you can, you know, hit enter on a script and it migrates from one structure to the other. Oh, I see. Um, unless we had something set up where it was like you set up a series of views to show what the old structure was, and no, then no, you I... have both of them side by side so that All one right, has yeah. an archived view and one is the one we actually use. That would be kind of cool if you could do if you could produce that. You mean, but the thing is, the Rails app right now, I can keep editing pu- up websites, but I can't actually make a change to the template right now. I can't change the thing I want to add to the site. So it's kind of like, well, if we could have the Rails engine continue going, but. No, we're, we're, it would, we need to migrate as soon as we, we need to get it editable as soon as we can. Hmm. Well, what I mean though is that you can have it work on the tools and get it working, and just get the editability, just getting things in there first, while having the Rails layer do the rendering hmm. in the in the stopgap until we got something new running. This is all hypothetical, and we would have to take an actual look at it. Yeah. and that's right. not going right. to that's going to be very boring for people to to listen to. <laughs> yeah, no, the let's air, do that. Some yeah. point. that'd be fun to do. All right, well, that, that clearly and, will. Yeah, and then one other aspect, which is just a, a push, just because I'm really bullish on Postgres, PostGraphle, which is the PostgreSQL GraphQL layer, um, is that it also allows you to 
specify, okay, now I know my UI layer is going to run all of these GraphQL queries. Maybe you made a search on the file system for all the places where you had a GraphQL query. You take all of those, you put them into a list and say, okay, these are all the queries that are allowed. Oh, cool. You can pass parameters to it, but this is now locked down. That thing that you always worry about with regard to REST, I mean, or rather that you don't worry about with regard to REST, because REST is saying this is exactly what you have available. GraphQL makes some people nervous because you're suddenly saying, wait, you have access to an arbitrary query? That's, what if I forget something? So there is a way when going to production to say, I know I've enumerated all of the places that I'm going to uh, be querying. So now this is going to a list. And if someone tries to, you know, be some third party client that does something that it shouldn't, it's going to get locked down 